The B-Rad Podcast is brought to you by MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Brad's Macadamia Masterpiece, mind-blowing nut butter blend, Chili Pad, temperature-controlled mattress systems, Inside Tracker, blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data all in one, and New Optimal, three nootropic supplements designed to improve focus, memory, and drive. And check out the bradkerns.com shop page, my personal selection of favorite products with great discounts for health, fitness, and peak performance. The brain is going to protect you from killing yourself. So some people's central governor might kick in, and you're going to stop before you die. Because there's always someone who finishes in second place who's not dead yet. You know, for example, the highest risk profession for cardiovascular events are first responders, police and fire. Their average life expectancy, sadly, is 55 years old and they die of heart disease because 1% of their day is sheer stress. A healthy human can use fat for fuel. I mean, I think that's probably a safe thing to say. You know, when we're sleeping, when we're walking, when we're running, that's just in our DNA. Sure, use glucose when you need it. That's fight or flight. But the majority of the day, we should be able to access fat for fuel. Let's talk about nootropics. These are supplements designed to improve cognitive function, memory, and creativity. And I'm taking three products from a company called New Optimal, N-U Optimal. The products are MetaFocus, which promotes flow state and improves processing speed and mental clarity. It contains ingredients like phenylalanine, B12, ginkgo biloba. I'm taking MetaMemory, which is good for memory retention, verbal fluency, reduced oxidative stress, very important for the brain. This product has things like lion's mane, pine bark, and bacopa. And I'm taking MetaDrive for motivation, stress resilience. It's got a little boost of caffeine in there, ashwagandha, rhodiola. They're wonderful products with a lot of scientific detail and easy to understand information on their website. So you get the big picture of what these products are all about, not just stuffing pills down your face, but how to do the stack as they call it strategically. You get a 16 page booklet that'll guide you to optimal use when you purchase. And guess what? 60 day money back guarantee and 30% discount from me. Listen, I'm not a coffee guy. I'm not a drug guy, but I'm always looking for any type of natural edge I can get, especially for cognition. So guess what? Let's avoid that sugary junk food. Let's get enough sleep. Take a power nap when you need one and consider trying some nootropics to see if you get a natural brain boost. So go visit newoptimal.com, N-U-O-P-T-I-M-A-L and enter the code BRAD30 to get 30% discount when you try it. Newoptimal.com for way more details. Hey, listeners, get ready for a fun, exciting, informative show with the one and only Dr. Mark Kukazella returning to the B-Rad podcast. This guy is on a mission in every area of life. He's doing so much incredible work right there on the front lines in the great state of West Virginia, where he practices family medicine and has been responsible for overhauling the dietary practices in his hospital. He also owns a unique and innovative running store in his spare time, promoting minimalist footwear and the barefoot movement. He's an incredibly accomplished marathon runner. He has been for decades. He did 30 straight years 
of running a sub three hour marathon. So for those of you who know much about marathon running, that is absolutely astonishing. He talks about his recent 100 mile run finish, the first time he's done that at the uh, ripe old age of 55. He's taken on new challenges and just living that lifestyle of continuing to uh, push himself and pursue athletic competitive goals, but also do great work with his patients. He does a lot of cardiac testing. So this show is going to be kind of a blend of important medical recommendations and information about how to assess and minimize your heart disease risk factors. We're going to talk about the EKG stress test and the coronary calcium score test, uh, how finely uh, dietary practices are seeping into prestigious medical journals. So your doctor needs to get up to speed on this stuff and realize this marker that we keep hearing about, the triglycerides to HDL ratio on your blood test is the most important marker for your heart disease risk factor. If you talk to this about your doctor and they don't know about that or they want to focus on LDL, this is flawed and dated information that's decades old. So it's triglycerides to HDL. Dr. Mark's going to talk a lot about that. He's going to talk about what your calcium score means and how to improve that, how to mitigate the risks of overdoing it with uh, an excessive approach to exercise, which has become such a common problem, and so much more, including his own battles with a pre-diabetic condition and how he's thrived on transforming his diet uh, about a decade ago and still putting out amazing athletic accomplishments, eating a clean diet, and living the dream. Dr. Mark Kukazella coming to you from West Virginia. He's the author of a wonderful book called Run for Your Life, which blends a lot of insights about the minimalist footwear, but also great commentary on just living a healthy, fit, happy, balanced lifestyle. Here we go with Dr. Mark. Dr. Mark Kukazella, we are live and this is going to be a fun show because we're just going to let it flow. There's so many fun things to talk about. We've uh, we've thrown out this topic, thrown out that topic. And um, I think maybe we'll just start with a a cute little intro about your your life's work and your journey. And, you know, got to throw in a plug for the running store and all that stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, turn it over to you for a second and then we'll, we'll hit some hot topics about healthy living, especially anti-aging and walking the talk like you do. You know, gosh, it's great to be back on Brad. I, I love listening to your show and I listen to it when I'm out for some nice mellow runs in the morning when it's nice and cool here, I'm on the East coast. So it gets, it gets hot as <laughs> hot as blazes midday. So I'm, I'm an early morning exerciser in the summer. Very calming. But yeah, keep doing the great work, you know, or you're you. helping educate people like myself. It's great. Well, coming from you, I, I'm, uh, I, I appreciate that very much. That's awesome. Well, you're sharing human experiences, you know, and then you, you, you interview great people, too, that, you know, know the science and we're all that individual experiment of aging people. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, you and me are probably, I'm turned 55 next month. So, oh, my goodness. I think we're about the same. Yeah, I'm in the, um, the we're in the 55 to 59. I'm 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 licking my chops. I'm going for those those standards in, in master's track. And it's nice to, you know, still have goals, still have a little bit of a competitive edge. But especially in your case, um, you're you're kind of um 
you're, you're doing it the right way. You're obviously steeped in the, um, the, the medical aspects of, of how to live a healthy lifestyle and, and seeing patients and doing cardio treadmill stress tests and, and well, well versed in the, the potential drawbacks of, uh, you know, an adverse approach to fitness. Uh, but what's, what's working for you and, you know, tell us a little bit about the athletic background too. You know, so I'm 55 and I've been a runner my, my whole life and I ran high school, ran in college and, and I uh, kept running distance, distance running, mostly marathons. I, I dipped into triathlon very early in the day when I had a little more free time. I actually worked in high school. The store was called the Race Pace Triathlon Store. I think it was maybe the first triathlon store. This was like in the 80s. And uh, Scott Molina would come in there. And, wow. uh, you know, this was Dave Scott era, your era, you know, like the... Uh, Oxford Triathlon was like the big one in the region. That was, I think that one still, it turned into an Ironman event in the same area, Cambridge, Maryland, and the Bay. But, you know, it was it was becoming big, right? There's, uh, you know, Columbia Triathlon. I, I did the first uh, Columbia Triathlon as a 13-year-old. And I, I finished third, you know, with, with a pretty good adult field with a little 10-speed with toe clips, you know? <laughs> you were, this is like old school. You know, there was no tri bars or anything. And, um, swimming was my weakest leg and then I was constantly hurt running so that's how I got into triathlon and I my the folks who owned this triathlon store were Ironman triathletes you know back in the early days and and they swam with the master swim club at the local community college so I started uh, going to their master swim uh, workouts at like five in the morning I got my swim pretty good after about a year or two with real coaching you know could get my mile it was down in the 2021 range for a mile you know, when I was kind of a, a flailing runner in the pool before that, <laughs> you know, one of those uh, bricks <laughs> with no body fat. But um, yeah, so yeah, I've, I've loved watching that sport evolve. But, but uh, you know, as I went through college and med school, running became more my mental therapy. And I just happened to enjoy racing. So I would hop back into races a few times a year just to keep my competitive juices going. But running really was the therapy that made the rest of my life work when you're studying and, you know, on call nights and stress at work, you know, you'd find a time to get out just to do, do a, an aerobic style run. And most of my running after college was aerobic, you know, without even knowing what that was really, because in college, you know, like, like you talk about, we just, beat the crap out of ourselves <laughs> until you broke. And, uh, you know, I ended up doing pretty well in marathons, you know, stayed uh, injury free. I, I had a streak of 30 straight years under three hours for a marathon. <laughs> and I, and I, lost, <laughs> I lost that streak in that year of the Boston Marathon when that horrible weather, I think it was 2018, mm. you know, the winning time, uh, you know, a Kamalchi one uh, from Japan in like 218 or something, <laughs> you know, in the blazing headwinds and horrible rain and you know, have the field drops out but i ran a 304 that that year and you know i gutted every bit for that for that 304 you know with full battle rattle gear um and then yeah, you know, probably... and then covid hit so you know marathon the world of marathoning kind of uh -huh. shut down so so i've been doing some trail running now you know just mixing it up and i haven't stepped into like a real like race since before covid and it's been kind of nice, you know, like I, I, it's just you go out and run and, and I've enjoyed running no less, not having like a competitive marathon. I, I did a hundred miler last fall. I'd never done anything like that. Wow. You know, kind of out of my wheelhouse, you know, I just well, kind of keep moving. <laughs> I finished with a little bit of headroom, you know, to, to finish under the cut. So I made it in under the cut. So, yeah, it's living life of a 
little bit of adventure out here in West Virginia. So how does that degree of difficulty compare to breaking three or, or getting down to, I think you've been in the 230s or, or, or as far as your PR and hitting that yeah, versus trying to go 100. 24s back when I was a little bit younger, bunch under 230. Now, degree is that tougher than doing 100 think, miles? Yeah. Oh, 100 miler blows it away. <laughs> so, really? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that I had to dig deep in every bit of my soul to to kind of make it through. It's just a different word. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's taxing. You're looking at your watch and you're, you know, slowing down from whatever pace. But it's just aid station to aid station. And, you know, you're running through the night. You're hitting roots, take some falls. Um, yeah, it's it, it's and you could get lost. You know, there's that aspect to it. And you're like, if you're running the Boston Marathon, you'd have to be a knucklehead bred to take a wrong turn. But you, you have to have situational awareness in these ultras different than like a road race, you know, at night going down single track trail. This this one was in the New River Gorge in West Virginia, which is a gorgeous uh, place. They just declared it a national park, but it goes up and down in the New River Gorge. But, you know, it's it, you kind of learn a lot about yourself when you're doing something like that. And I, I learned that I was pretty gritty, you know, at the end, I <laughs> kept going. I had a couple after I finished, you don't even realize how far you took yourself. And it probably like to the topic of health. I don't think for me, it was healthy. Um, you know, I w- was trained kind of morning runs. I didn't put any really long mm. run specific work in. And uh, after the event, I had two significant bagel uh, syncopes, you know, probably a like whether it was volume depletion, I mean, I thought I was up on my salt. I mean, you're taking a ton of salt. I mean, you're doing everything you can to try to keep equilibrium um, for that amount of time. And, and, you know, you've talked about parasympathetic tone and vagal tone. So my body is very, very kind of vaguely driven. My resting pulse is like 35. And uh, yeah, I got out of the, the car um, after driving back to our lodge, just stood up, you know, and just went right down. Um, Luckily, my good friend was medical, so she didn't like panic and call 911. She just lifted my legs up and I came oh. back to They put me on the couch, you know, and they're like, you should have some broth or some salt. But I was like, I was done. I needed to just sleep. So I slept for like two hours, like coma. And then I went to get up again, you know, uh, boom, went down again. And uh, she lifted my legs up. <laughs> I woke up and she's like, knucklehead. You're going to drink this broth or I'm taking you to the ER because <laughs> your friends want to take you to the ER now. But uh, that was fine. I, I drank a bunch of really thick broth and then took another nap and then was OK. But that's probably not a good place to put yourself, you know, week in, week out. It, you know, it took me a couple months really to feel like I had my legs back under me, you know, like springy legs. You know, felt like I, I could go sprint relaxed. It was it was um it was a totally different recovery than a marathon. So you were sodium depleted. Is that why you had those? those yeah, I don't know. It, it could be a little sodium depletion, a little volume depletion, or just your body has just been somewhere where you don't even, you know, we have baroreceptors, you know, there's baroreceptors when we stand up, wake up and they constrict our blood vessels in our legs to keep blood in our brain. You know, maybe my whole neurologic system, because you're on your feet, you know, hundred percent, you know, for, it was 31 hours, you know, you're on your feet, just marching, running for 31 hours. So, so maybe there's something in the neurologic tone or something that just wasn't awake yet 
you know, it's like, say, I need to take a rest. My baroreceptors say, I'm done. I've been keeping blood going to your brain now for 31 hours without a, without sleeping, without the legs up, right? Maybe there is something there that was, you know, the tone of your blood vessels, but it's, I don't think it's a place that I would want to keep putting myself in. I, I like that. The doctor threw out a lot of maybes there, and it's kind of cool <laughs> because, you know, you you did something so extreme and so grueling, and uh, it doesn't you don't need an explanation for everything. You were just toast at the end, and toast. this happened and that <laughs> happened. Um, so what's going on out there on the race course when we're pushing those limits? And I know you're familiar with Tim Noak's central governor theory, and is this fatigue you know, a, a blend of of mental and physical, and uh, the, the the vagal system is is getting uh, literally worn out. The the sodium potassium pumps are fried, or you know, talk us through what happens when we when we hit that wall. Yeah, I'm a total uh, advocate of Tim Noakes's work. He's preeminent sports scientist in the world. You know, certainly, you know his his dietary advice now would save the planet. You know, I, I ascribe to a low-carb diet. I, I have maturity-onset diabetes of youth. And I heard Tim speak 10 years ago in Cape Town when he started to talk about this stuff. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> when I heard Noakes talk about low-carb diets, I'm like, okay, this is legit. Because he said, it's taken me five years of research before I felt confident enough to tell the general population that I think the food pyramid's upside down. But back to the central governor, Brad, for people that don't know what that is, that's where your brain is kind of captain of the ship. You know, we could say you're, you're at your VO2 max or some other physiologic function, but but the brain allows us to uh, keep going or to cut itself off. So the brain is going to protect you from killing yourself. So some people's central govern, governor might kick in and you're going to stop before you die, right? You're going to stop. You're going to say, because there's always someone who finishes in second place who's not dead yet. So what happened to that person versus the one who won the race? And it could have been by a lean, you know, so somehow that central governor might turn off motor units. Now, a mom who's trying to pick up a car uh, off her child, um, the central governor is off. She can lift a car. She can recruit 100% of her muscle fiber. You know, probably never would ever be able to do that again. But that self-protection mode is gone. So I think in a race like an ultra, you know, you kind of ignore that central governor a little bit. Um, and you kind of go someplace that you wouldn't go in a training run. Uh, one of my friends told me this, you know, I had some friends there kind of crewing and hanging out, you know, be at the aid stations. And you had to do a shoe change at about five miles to go because my foot, I kept banging one of my toes, right? Because you hit hit roots. So like I needed to change these shoes and my feet were a big hot mess. So I changed shoes. He looked at my feet. They're a mess. We put a different pair of shoes on, made it the last five miles. But afterwards, he said, uh, I never saw quit in your face. You know, so he saw me in a couple dark places there, but he said, I never saw quit in your face. And I think, and you see it too, Brad, you've probably seen that on the course or maybe in your own face on a day that you just said, okay, your brain just said, look, this isn't my day. I'm going to exit the course, you know. Um, but I, I think, yeah, like we probably see it in our friends or other competitors. When you see that quit in someone's face, the you know, that's, that's the central governor you know, saying, I'm done, right? Don't, I don't want to go any place further. But when that quit's not in your face, maybe you're kind of pushing through that central governor a little bit to a place that might not be healthy. But we know humans can do pretty extreme things that aren't really healthy things to do in the case of emergence. And maybe athletic competition sometimes, since we're not 
you know, getting chased by lions out there. Our states of emergency now where we put ourselves in that space are athletic competitions. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, you can look at the average suburban dad, right? <laughs> maybe me driving your kids to soccer practice, going to work. You're like, where's that? Where's that? You know, I'm a military person, you know, so it's like, where's that part of your life that you're, you know, that part of you needs to be, you know, inspired and, and, and that's, you know, you join a Spartan race or you join an ultra where you're going to challenge yourself to be in that space, you know, where you're either going to turn on the governor and step off the course or slow down or ignore the governor and go somewhere that maybe you haven't gone before. You know, that's how people make breakthrough performances. Yeah, I think the key here is to figure out how to turn it on and off. And of course, you know, you mentioned this suburban Suburban dad with the dad bod, I guess, is a term now where they're they're just uh, heading around and, and sitting on the sidelines watching their kids play soccer and, you know, lost all that uh, intensity and that things that really make us human. Um, and so it's great to put yourself on the starting line once in a while and, and, and go for it and, and see what you're made of. Uh, but I also think we have to figure out, you know, how to apply the, the governor, because um, if we just you know, rage through life every single day. I mean, I had to learn the hard way when I was training for the professional triathlon circuit that it was really easy to overdo it due to my competitive intensity and tremendous desire to win and and to beat my time. And so I could go out there and work too hard. So I had to kind of have these personality aspects where, you know, there was the badass on, on the starting line on race day, but also there's this wimpy guy that needed his naps and needed his sleep and needed to stretch more and needed more food for uh, the last 30 miles of the bike ride. And um, that's a, a tricky part to figure out, I think, especially if people are, you know, leaning on one side or the other away from healthy balance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And that kind of comes to like, you know, if you're advising athletes or I'm advising people, you know, we talked a little bit before, you know, we, we started recording about cardiac testing, you know, so who is safe to kind of release that governor sometime and take yourself into a real place of stress. So I think if you're out there listening, you know, make sure your cardiac health is good. Because, yeah, maybe have a bagel and pass out and that's fine and you wake up. But if, you know, you have a cardiac event because you took yourself to someplace, um, uh, that's not good because then you, you might not come home. And and cardiac disease, you know, is, is prevalent out there, way more prevalent than most of us understand, even in people that are highly fit athletes. You know, you've written about fit but not healthy. And there's some simple ways we can assess that in people. You know, is it safe for you to go charge up that hill, you know, do that? Spartan race all out, right? All out, or should you, you know, keep the governor on a little bit more? Well, I suppose for most people, they they would probably get a uh, a clean bill of health and be able to go and and maybe maybe get in better shape, push themselves a little more in general everyday life. But uh, tell me about that kind of category of the the chronic athlete who's maybe built up for years and decades into a high risk category of heart disease. Yeah, and it's very hard uh, just to look at someone, listen to their heart, look at their blood work, Brad, because you can't see under the hood. You know, you could look pretty well, you could look lean, you could have, quote, normal cholesterol, and that could mean absolutely nothing. But what we need to know is the status of their artery health. You know, are they developing any plaque on their arteries? You know, I'm in the stress test lab every day, and I'll ask people, well, what causes a heart attack? And they'll kind of look quizzically at you. Well, no one's ever asked me that. Well, they say, well, a blockage. 
And I'm like, well, what's a blockage? They're like, yeah, when you have, you know, when you, yeah, blockage, right? That's what it is. Um, but they're not really clear on, they, they think, okay, a blockage would be, say you have a kitchen sink. Okay, it's 70% blocked, it's 80% blocked, it's 90% blocked, and now you have the blockage. And that's kind of what they think. Um, but that's actually not what happens. So what happens to cause a cardiac event, you know, a, a myocardial infarction, the widowmaker, whatever you call it, is you have a little piece of plaque on your arteries and that little piece of plaque ruptures. So you don't need a full blockage to have a heart attack. All, all it requires is a little bit of plaque on your arteries. And then one day, you know, by the grace of, you know, what's happening that day, that piece of plaque ruptures. You know, for example, the highest risk profession for cardiovascular events are first responders, hmm. police and fire. Their average life expectancy, sadly, is 55 years old and they die of heart disease because 1% of their day is sheer stress. Someone pulls a weapon on you, you enter a building. And if you look at just the average police or firefighter, their lifestyle is full catastrophe to develop insulin resistance or diabetes. You know, their circadian mismatch, poor sleep, high stress, food at the station. You know, so they're just cardiovascular disease in the making. And then that one day, you know, they go out for the call and they, they don't come home. But there are plenty of type A athletes out there probably similar that, you know, sign up for a triathlon. But their corporate lifestyle, you know, is probably not optimal. And they're developing little bits of plaque, you know, stress, a little bit of prediabetes. You know, people don't understand what that is. Uh, maybe a remote history of smoking. And well, now they kind of found religion and quit smoking and took up triathlon, but they've got plaque on their arteries and they don't know it. And these people, so I, we do a couple types of tests here at my hospital. I run the cardiovascular lab, you know, we reduce stress testing, multiple different types of testing. So there's the standard stress test. And I think that may have been what you had, Brad. They put you on a treadmill, hook you up to an EKG, game on. <laughs> how far can you go and how fast can you go? That's mostly a measure of fitness. So if you're listening to this and you've had that test, it kind of tells you how fit you are. And it tells us what kind of your immediate risk of a cardiovascular event is. Is there something staring right at you that day that don't go run today, go get checked out? Okay, we see something on the EKG, you're getting angina, but it doesn't tell us much at all about your 10-year risk. Hmm. That would be what's called a coronary artery calcium score, which costs about $99. You know, I think I think you've spoken or to people about that test, Brad, or in in, the, in your books. But what that is, it's kind of the mammogram of the of the heart. So it's a quick CT scan, and it's available and all over the world. It costs about ninety nine, maybe one hundred and twenty dollars, but it gives you a score anywhere from zero to you know holy blank. <laughs> you know, you got a lot of plaque, and that tells you that score tells you you know, what your 10-year risk is. So the combination of the standard stress test, which tells you your fitness, which is important, people that are fit overall have less cardiovascular events, right? They're, they're, they're able to deal with cardiac workload without putting too much stress. You know, so if you can go, like you said, Brad, you probably went to stage five or six, you know, fine. So you can go walk the dog without it being a severe stress on your body. Somebody heart rate goes up to 170 at at a crawl, they're basically putting themselves in high intensity stress, getting the mail. So, mm -hmm. so the fitness marker is important, but you could have been someone who went to, you know, stage five on the stress test, but has plaque all over their arteries and you just don't know it. So both of those tests can give you good information. And we use the calcium score for military pilots. 
it's the only test that we really trust to be able to determine what someone's cardiac risk is, you know, before they would fly a performance plane. So, so that tells you how important that test is because the military, we just look at data. We're not looking at opinions. We're looking at data. <laughs> He's a really nice industry. guy though. <laughs> oh, mercy. Uh, so the, the stress test is taking one step beyond the EKG, measuring your heart at rest and seeing yeah. how your heart reacts to, to the treadmill workload. effort. And so are there things that show up for, let's say, the, the athlete who's sitting on a chair and does an EKG and it looks good, but then you get on the treadmill and are you looking for, what's the, what's the abnormality that's going to give you a concern? Even yeah, a person who's- really you know, do, you, do you see, see these things? So someone's having, say, for example, Brad, every time you go walk up, uh, you're, you're a speed golfer, right? So say you're just an average walking golfer and the 18th green is like up a steep hill. You know, every time you're walking up that steep green, you're getting this horrible kind of shortness of breath and discomfort, and it's getting worse and worse. So we want to, kind of, okay, is that just some heartburn or is that what we call ischemia, meaning lack of blood flow to the heart with a demand? So we would put you on a treadmill and see, okay, let's try to replicate that symptom and let's look at the EKG. There's some markers on the EKG that show some segments of your heart are being what's called underperfused, meaning they're not getting the right amount of oxygen when the heart is beating faster. So, so, but those are not the typical stories you get, but that's, that's the purpose of like a diagnostic stress test, meaning you're trying to answer that question. If it's just for screening of who's at cardiac risk, it's not a good test for screening because people do fine. They don't have symptoms, but it doesn't tell us who has plaque or who doesn't have plaque. So your fitness level gives a little bit of information. The more fit people, it's all about odds. N none of us get out of here alive. You know, so it's all about odds. So if you can exercise, you know, to a, you know, fully fit VO2 max 60 person, your odds of an event are less than the person that, you know, can give to a VO2 max of 10. But as you know, you've had friends, you know, who could crush it on an Ironman who've had cardiac events. So, so they were fit, but under the hood, they weren't healthy. Something going on in their cardiovascular system was 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 not healthy even though they were super fit so oh. so the combination of that test telling you more your fitness and then something that tells you the status of your arteries would be kind of the good you know like you took your car in right you know short-term check engine light okay here's maintenance long-term check engine light or both things looking good oh so you really need the combo i, I guess i misunderstood i thought the stress yeah. test might be catching these poor uh, tragic stories like Ryan Shea running in the Olympic trials marathon, obviously all. he would yeah. have crushed the stress test. Yeah. He would have uh, been fine. Yeah. He would have been fine on a stress test, but so he needed the one, two punch of the coronary calcium score. And in all cases or in almost all cases, do you see, um, you know, some poor results on that calcium score in a fit person? And that's the, the red flag. Yeah. So you can predict who's going to have calcium mostly by their state of metabolic health. So people with insulin resistance, which would be that pre-diabetic pre-diabetic state, high triglyceride, low HDL, hypertension, a little bit of a belly, almost 100%, if they meet criteria for insulin resistance or the metabolic syndrome, they have plaque. Oof. You know, they, they have plaque. Uh, Dr. Joseph Kraft published a book in 1976 with 3,000 matched autopsies of glucose tolerance tests with insulin curves. 
not glucose curves, insulin curves. So he saw what was happening with the insulin spikes when they would have a carbohydrate meal. And then he had matched autopsies. So he would call it diabetes in situ, meaning diabetes is there, but you just don't see it yet. So these people that had high insulin spikes, glucose was still okay. They all had cardiovascular disease. So he said this, finally, find me a patient who has cardiovascular disease who says they don't have diabetes, and I'll prove to you they're not diagnosed. So he would use an insulin assay test, not waiting for the glucose to go high. But yeah, so if they have kind of the full Monty metabolic syndrome, high triglyceride, low HDL, hypertension, impaired fasting glucose, and just a little bit of waste, as, as our friend, the good Dr. Maffetone would say, is two times your waist should be less than your height. You don't need a, a fancy scale. Or like in the dad bod scenario, look at yourself in the mirror. Where are you carrying your fat? If you got a little belly, you know, buyer beware. Saw a patient just like that this morning, you know, pretty fit guy, hiker, belly, horrible metabolic syndrome. He's going to go get, he did fine. He's a hiker. He walked fine, but he's likely going to have some plaque on his arteries, but he just needs to know. I mean, that's why we do the test. Maybe his genetics somehow cleaned that up. Some people have good housekeeping mm. and can clean up plaque. Um, other people don't have good housekeeping. Would uh, high HDL be indicative of good housekeeping? Yes. Yeah. So high HDL, That if you're a listener there and you pull up your lipid panel, the most important kind of equation there is your triglyceride to HDL ratio. So high triglyceride, low HDL is a marker for insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. Ideally, your HDL is higher than your triglyceride. So if you have a high HDL, you know, mine's like 110 and my triglycerides are like 30, you know, because I eat that Ooh. wonderful uh, high protein, high fat, low carb diet. <laughs> it's good. That's how we're designed to live. Um, mine was way different than that before I started eating this way. But that's a, a marker. But again, people may show up at age 60 and they may have, you know, read Mark's work 10 years ago, but up until age 50, you know, they were full catastrophe, you know, so, so um, yeah, I mean, I've had colleagues here, you know, who survived cardiac arrest, who are really fit runners, you know, who, yeah, but prior life, you know, they were corporate, kind of like the Jim Fix story, right? Every, I think most people know about him. He was a smoker, overweight. Um, then he uh, decided to find religion and he wrote the complete book of running in 1976. And then he went out for a run and he didn't come back. But um, the backstory to that is he had significant chest pain for like three weeks before his event. He even went to his doctor and his doctor said, knucklehead, don't run. Oh. But, you know, I'm a runner and, and you know, you're a, a runner and an athlete. But there was something like he was so type A, you know, and he was probably treating his nicotine addiction with his running. Like the thought of not running. Like, no, I, I got to run. Um, and, yeah, so, but unfortunate, but, I don't, you know, we've learned a lot since 1976, but unfortunately, there's a lot of things we've learned, but not really promoted out well about metabolic syndrome and cardiac health. Well, speaking of that, and um, uh, I'm putting the question out to, to your peers, um, when are they going to get with the program? Because we still kind of have to absorb this this flawed and dated message that your your total LDL is a concern. You're going to get prescribed with statins if you have 
uh, a high LDL. And it seems like this triglycerides to HDL ratio is being spouted by many of the leaders in the ancestral health and progressive health movement. Um, but I'm wondering why it's not translating quickly and urgently into the nightly news and into you know, doctors across the world uh, get, getting with the program in that sense. Who knew that sleep was so important to health? Everyone knows, and we all know, that it's important to minimize artificial light and digital stimulation after dark. But did you know that your body temperature has to drop a couple of degrees for you to fall asleep? And we have to maintain a cool body temperature throughout the night to cycle optimally through all phases of sleep. Now, we've done this naturally for millions of years, sleeping in caves. But today, we crank the heat, we overload on the blankets, and it's not uncommon to awaken at night. Not only from people that have these major night sweats, but also minor overheating that you might not even realize is disturbing your sleep. Chili Sleep Systems offers an awesome solution of a customizable, climate-controlled mattress pad using circulating water. Jumping into a pre-cooled bed will help lower your core body temperature and trigger a deep, relaxing sleep. I love the machine because it also makes a beautiful, relaxing white noise. To be clear, ideal sleep environment is a slightly lower body temperature via cool air in the room and a cool mattress and with your skin comfortably warm with the right pajamas and blankets. Chili Sleep's Uller System, O-O-L-E-R, allows you and your sleeping partner of choice to program different temperatures for each side of the bed via your smartphones. No more temperature wars. You can also program a gradual morning warming of the bed for a graceful morning wake-up. So please head over to Chili Sleep, C-H-I-L-I Sleep dot com slash Brad for Chili Sleep's best deal, which they are offering to B-Rad podcast listeners for limited time. That's chillysleep.com slash Brad for a special offer. You know, I wish I could answer that, Brad. It is kind of sad because all this data is in their own journals. This isn't just, you know, being presented at ancestral health conferences. Dr. These... Mark's wild ideas on the podcast. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's in their own journals. You know, Ron Krause's article last year in Journal of American College of Cardiology, Exonerating Saturated Fat. Three members of the Dietary Guidelines Committee were on that paper, you know, and it went through all of this, you know, in their own journal. Um, there was another two article series just this summer in the JACC, this Journal of American College of Cardiology, talking about cardiovascular disease from a metabolic standpoint, meaning we need to redefine metabolic disease from an adiposity and glucose dysregulation approach, which was insulin resistance. Like this is the root. So it's in their journals, but you know, I'm I'm not a conspiracy theory person about medical training, but you know, changing any institutional thinking is like moving a battleship. And our industry, you know, is a for-profit industry, and it's driven by pharma. You know, because the ads are out there. Us in New Zealand are the only countries that have direct-to-consumer advertising. You know, much of the medical training is sponsored by pharma. You go to these conferences; it's like a pharma fest. You know, you, you remember going to like, you know, Ironman Expo, you know, you'd have all the bike companies there and, you know, all the goo companies. Right? Yeah, but if you go to like a medical conference now, other than, you know, something in the ancestral health world, um, yeah, it's just like, wow, this is crazy, right? It's just products and drugs and treatments. You know, we, we treat the smoke, but there's no financial incentive to the system to make illness go away. We're not a national healthcare system. If we were, 
I think we would incentivize that more. But you know, we're a, a for-profit healthcare system, and until until that paradigm changes, I, I think what I'm doing will still be an outlier. You know, uh, I've been doing this ten years, and I don't see a lot of forward progress. You know, it's kind of one doc, and it's almost a patient-driven thing, Brad. Where you know, <laughs> some patient comes in waving a waving a book. And uh, challenging the doctor. I love it. Yeah. Why not be patient driven? We don't have to wait yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. It's open access world. Patients now can can understand more than their doctors about their own illnesses. As long as they go right. to the right sources, right? They don't right. want to just go onto Pinterest and pull something up. But people are pretty savvy now. You know, they go yeah. into the medical literature um, and then they can bounce yeah. things off me. But no, no, we want to empower people to go into the literature, understand like the gentleman this morning, a smart guy said, okay, here's a couple of references. Just go look up coronary artery calcium, you know, go into PubMed, read a little bit about it, you know, uh, look up triglyceride to HDL mm-hmm. ratio, right. you know, just put that in your search engine, end metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease, right? Just tag those together and your phone will blow up with articles in Lancet, New England mm-hmm. Journal, JAMA, right? Not some someone's Health better law. home, uh, men's yes. health, uh, yes. shape. The uh, legit we're talking stuff. legit stuff. Well, legit that's a stuff. that's a good point that you make that it's now leaking into the medical journals, especially the diet associations with your heart disease risk. Because I think previously, and this is sort of in defense of the medical profession, it, it's really sick care and disease care is the main focus and the and the the main training, and so it kind of had the obligation of a hobby if your medical professional is astute with, you know, the latest and greatest uh, dietary findings, because that's not their area of training or expertise. I know they like to talk and spout and tell people to quit eating so many eggs if their LDL is inching a little high. And I have to process those um, recommendations from family, friends, and loved ones, you know, in real time right now. But if now, if this stuff is in the medical journals, then the, the medical professional is obligated to keep up. I know you have to get your points and your, your training and you should be reading that stuff. So yeah, we can put pressure on the patient driven side to ask your doctor five questions. And if they, if they answer, um, then there, then you, you can stay with them. Otherwise, you know, shake your head a little bit. One was, uh, I just heard this on a podcast. Someone said, I'll tell you if a dietitian's, uh, a trained registered dietitian is up with the, uh, with the, the science and the, the emerging science or not, ask them one question. You know what the question was? Does the human need sugar to live? <laughs> and if, if the dietitian says yes, um, then you can Got say, it. okay, pal, you know what? Go, uh, go look at these medical journals and see, uh, see, see what's going on. Uh, but I think it was referencing the, um, uh, the you know the 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 dietetic association diabetes association's own recommendations that you want to blend in a strategic amount of carbohydrates to control yeah. the disease, which is absolutely shocking. Absolutely, yeah. I, I've got a monitor on my arm. I can make it a week with, you know, and I get a run- little carbohydrate <laughs> with veg. You know, some non-starchy yeah. veg. I think that's good for the microbiome. But yeah, I think it was the Institute of Medicine report at year 2000, Brad, that said there is no essential carbohydrate. Right. Right. There's essential amino acids, you know, which should be balanced. And animal products have the right balance of essential amino acids. You know, it's higher quality protein, you know, essential fatty acids. And most of those are going to come from your natural sources, not stuff made in plants. <laughs> you know, no industrial oils. It's going to come from just a mix of ancestral foods that travel with the protein, right? So you got eggs, you got meat, you got fish, you 
got some avocado in there, um, olive oil, if it's good quality, it's good fat, cheese, real butter, ghee, coconut oil, those things that would taste good. You know, like the good uh, Dr. Kate Shanahan would say, you know, you know, it's a good fat if you could taste it and it tastes good. Oh, right? interesting. That's all you need to know. Right. As opposed to down in some canola oil. Yeah, yeah. It's taste all anything. you need to know. Yeah. Right? Like there's uh, primal kitchen dressings. You could drink them like, like a smoothie, you know, but could you imagine just picking up Wishbone or one of those, uh, you know, there's a couple brands, you know, there's craft brands or yeah. even Newman's, you know, made with olive oil. It's like canola oil, canola oil. The last ingredient is olive oil. Yeah. Shame on, shame on Paul Newman. Um, yeah, and give him the charity, of, but, but killing people at the same time, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, speaking of olive oil, I mean, I've always gone and tried to source the extra virgin olive oil as we're dutifully told. Uh, but the difference between a truly fresh first cold pressed extra virgin olive oil and almost everything else you can find is shocking and the 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 marker is there that it burns uh, it burns in the back of your throat because yes, of the yeah, that, the that, antioxidant that potency stuff. and i just joined the um it's called the olive oil club or it might mm-hmm. even be called the olive oil club you can probably find it i'll send a link uh but this guy ships the very fresh processed uh, it, first cold press only and you take one spoonful and you're like wow your your mouth is on fire and almost any other brand even organic uh whatever the the fancy label says is uh, relatively uh, dull even though it's you know much better than uh, the the plastic jugs from the big box store so there's definitely a hierarchy where you got to go for the top with the fats in my family uh, my last name's Kukazella. they're sicilian farmers olive oil farmers and um we used to go over there when I was stationed over in Europe, and this is when you could travel with liquids, but they would give us like a big like petrol container, like five gallons of pure oh. first-pressed olive oil, and the stuff was like dark green. It, it was a commodity. Like, you know, you'd bring it back to the base, and people are like, you'd, you'd, they'd come over, and they'd have this olive oil, and they're like, <laughs> they would trade, like, what do you want? I want give me a little bottle of that for them. Uh, yeah, like when, if you've never tasted like that real first press, I don't think you even understand it. Like I can't get that kind of stuff. Maybe I'll look into this olive oil club, but you know, like that stuff right out of the farm that is just so like, it was a color green that you couldn't even describe. Incredible. Uh, I want to go back to that calcium score for a second on behalf of my super fit, super healthy, lifelong athletic friend. And he went in there. He likes to do self-quantification and and test everything. His blood work is outstanding. And he came up with a big fat high score on the the CAC. And so I'm wondering, is some of that uh, benign because it's calcified to the extent that it's just there? Uh, And why would someone who's had a lifelong history of, um, you know, fit health, fitness, maybe a little excessive fitness uh, is one of those um, key factors in, in the past. But if you're eating clean, you're doing everything right. How does that look on those cases? Yeah. So you'd have to look, you know, when you say he's got a, a fat score, so we'd look at him from zero, you know, so I mean, if you could share what his Agatson score actually was. Maybe it was 400 mark yes. or something in like that. In his fifties, like was he in his fifties, sixties? Yeah, so that's pretty high. That puts him at about the 90th percentile for age. Um, yeah. On the yeah, bad so, side. <laughs> so it's, it's information. So people have cardiac events from plaque ruptures. So there's stable plaque and unstable plaque. So if he had a score of 400, was smoking, fully diabetic, mm. going through a divorce, not sleeping, 
you know, it's a big hot mess, right? Like he's his plaque is not stable. Now he could have been, for example, so say your 55 year old buddy before he found sport was a three pack a day smoker, weighed 300 pounds. And then, uh, you know, he read Mark's first book, <laughs> you know, and lost a hundred pounds. And now he's good. You know, his A1C is good. His triglycerides are low. Like if all of his, you know, if all of the markers of the fire are out, <laughs> likely, and then the only way to know, so we don't recommend redoing that test every year, um, but maybe about a three-year interval. So he should, you know, talk to someone who really understands all the drivers of inflammation in the heart, because there could be something, you're, he could have sleep apnea, maybe you don't even know it. You know, maybe some at work is stressing him out, right? Maybe he just has, he's a dude and he doesn't want to talk about it. He's going through something really horrible, because we know that there's stuff we understand and there's stuff we don't fully understand. And you just would want to kind of do an assessment, make sure you can control the things you can control, recheck it in three years. And and this would be a person that I would encourage not to do some extreme type of event until you know that that plaque is stable and that he's doing everything he can to create that stability. So training for an Ironman with a score of 400 by itself with a full-time job it's probably an inflammatory state. Now, if he wanted to just, you know, go out and run and ride and just have some joy and maybe, you know, do a low key type of event, you know, that isn't like a big deal just to go get in the game a little bit. I think that's cool. But I think you'd want to do like a HSCRP, you know, make sure because that's kind of a more of acute marker. There's a, a cardiac CRP, which is a marker of inflammation. And that person you might, you know, want to put on a low dose statin, you know, so I know there's controversy about which patients benefit from the statin. So there's this pleiotropic effect of statins. Pleiotropic means there's a multitude of effects we don't fully know, but it's not, it's not LDL cholesterol lowering. There's other anti-inflammatory effects. So a low dose statin medication, and this is in the data. So we know that the people that have scores of zero, meaning they're not going to rupture a plaque, giving them a statin doesn't change anything because they're not going to rupture a plaque, no matter what their cholesterol is. But the people that have scores in the 400 range, there's data that a statin in that group can be beneficial to reduce their odds of a cardiac event. But it doesn't supersede, like if the person was fully diabetic and smoking and took a statin, the statin's probably useless, right? <laughs> you better quit the other things. But if he's doing everything else right, you know, I have... Uh, patients just like that in my clinic that I would suggest, unless they're having muscle cramping, you know, like one of the water-soluble statins, which are going to have less side effect, pravastatin, or um, it's called Livolo is another, I'm trying to remember the generic name of that, but but those are going to be more tolerable for athletes with the same effect. So talk to someone, so it's not like black and white on the statins, you know, that person probably should take a low-dose baby aspirin you know, just for the event, they they did have a rupture. Mm-hmm. But 400 is a pretty significant score for someone in their 50s. Now, if they were 99 and they had a 400 score, who the hell cares? They're 99, right? They've lived long enough. Anyone who lives that long is probably going to have some plaque. But at that young age, that's a real score. Uh, now, if you repeat the test like you recommended and your score kind of uh, plateaus, because I, I believe this this calcium scan is an accumulation of plaque over lifetime or whatever. And so if you have a stable score two years, five years later, I guess you're um, giving an indication that the plaque is stable. 
And I, do mm-hmm. I understand that you can't reverse that number despite the cleanest living possible if you... Yeah, it's a good question. You know, all we, what we really want to know is who's having more or less heart attacks, not what specifically happens to the score. You know, because as soft black calcifies, so people could actually be getting healthier and have a little bit higher score because some of the soft plaque they have, which would ultimately become hard plaque, might calcify. So they might have a little bit higher score and still be fine. It just, but if it's if the score is like going up by a significant amount, you better sort that out why that's happening. Um, vitamin K2 is something now being used, make sure their vitamin D level is good. You know, some other supplements might be able to kind of reduce that plaque burden a little bit. Um, so there is some some research going on now into reversal of CAC, but we don't know yet whether that whether that equilibrates to less events because all it ta- it's unstable plaque. Which by looking at that calcium score, it doesn't tell you much about what's stable or unstable. That's more what's happening to the person in front of you. You know, if there's someone who's got a lot of inflammatory issues in their life, um, it's going to be unstable. If there's someone who's got everything, you know, they just uh, you know found Buddhism after their life at Taipei, and they're just living a life of love and giving and rest and, you know, minimalism, they're probably going to be okay. Like if they just let that, if there's someone who's let that part of themselves go, and every now and then we'll see that, not very often. Usually it's hard to take the type A out of somebody. Have you ever seen that happen, Brad? Like you seem Uh like someone who is like in that world, but now now can ride on the mellow side of the road. You know, we ride on the right side yeah, or the left Mark, side of the I'm, road. I'm you trying. Back and forth. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because that is absolutely uh, my profound life goal that's been carrying on for a long time because I identify myself, you know, pursuing the uh, career of being a triathlete and the level of training and pain and suffering that it entails. Um, it's kind of a type A uh, endeavor, right? It wasn't, I wasn't a bowler. I was out there punishing my body day after day. And I had to learn the hard way in that journey at the highest level of, of athletics that um, you can get in your own way and in fact, be your own worst enemy and your competitive intensity and your drive and your focus and your dedication can all serve to harm you if they get out of hand. And so I had to kind of grow and learn to uh, you know, get over myself and kind of have a, a more calmer, kinder, gentle approach to how I trained my own body, as well as my mind and where I place the significance of my results and, you know, trying to uh, not align that with my self-esteem or my, uh, you know, my, my overall view of the world. And so I think that's a wonderful lesson to carry forward into everything I've done where, you know, we got to work hard. We want to do the best we can. We want to make a contribution, but certainly not getting caught up in the ups and downs and the, uh, you know, w- whether we get external recognition that we, uh, we, we, we think we deserve and all that thing. So it, it's definitely a daily battle. And I, I, I encourage, uh, more conversation about this because boy, um, isn't it true that the, the origination of the term type a, can you tell us where that term came from? I think you're going to get the answer, right? You know, I don't, I don't know that, or I'm trying to remember the origin. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was for a heart disease risk category. You haven't heard that? All right. I'm going to have to look it up. We're going to have to go find that. If if the doc hasn't heard of that, that's, that's a big one. It might be hearsay, but um, you're a type A, meaning you're in the top category for heart disease risk. And and type B is, you know, type A is always seen as a sort of, mostly seen as complimentary, uh, but maybe we should reframe that a little bit. 
right, we'll look that up and put a link in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> man. Gave me some homework. You know, I've used that word so many times in my life. You know, right? I don't know the origin. I like digging into the origins of things, but I don't know the origin of that. We will, we will, uh, we will score that one, people. Now, one thing you mentioned in passing, I, I wanted to um, to check in on. You identified as a pre-diabetic uh, at some point. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, I had. I was uh, on military duty about ten years ago, and my A one C was up in the six range, um, and I, I looked like this, you know, kind of lean runner, and um, <laughs> I was actually kind of in the, you know, probably eating like eight thousand calories a day. Um, and uh, so they were trying to figure out what was going on w- with me. And they sent me for a test called a C-peptide, which is a measure of insulin production. And my level was 0.3, which most of the diabetes we talk about now is a high insulin state, insulin resistant. But the other type of diabetes, you don't make enough insulin. So I was in on that side of the of the house and they put a glucose monitor on me, you know, similar to the one I wear on my arm now. and um, Back then, they were like these re- more research type of things and and didn't give you a real-time reading that I could see, but we downloaded it three days later, and you saw what would happen. So I would I was eating the runner diet, right? So I would have a bowl of cereal. My sugar would shoot up to 250 or 300. So I didn't have a, a good first-phase insulin response, but my second-phase insulin response was there, and I was massively insulin-sensitive. So sugar would go up. Second phase insulin response would kick in. My muscles were insulin sensitive and I would crash. So I would wake up every, it was happening for like, I don't know, two, three years. I was waking up at 2 a.m. every morning, like needing to eat. And I was just, I was thinking, well, I must, it must be because I'm running, right? I must need the calories, but it wasn't because my sugar's like going like this. And, um, and at the same time, I'd been working on obesity and fitness tests for the military and had come across low carb diets for obesity. So immediately I knew that it wasn't a dangerous thing, even though all my medical training told me eggs were going to kill me because my dad had a heart attack. So I just turned the food pyramid upside down in a day, um, started checking my sugars and kept my A1C out of that diabetic range, which kept me able to serve in the military. Cause if you have diabetes, you're discharged. You wow. know, so, so now um, I'm kind of, so I had some chicken and a burger without the bun and you can see what happens three eggs in the morning, see what the scans are. He's if zapping his continuous glucose monitor, people. Yeah, it reads through my jacket here, but it's, it stays good. See if it goes. It'll kind of be probably in the 90 range here. That's not picking up right now, but yeah, I mean, if you look at my, my timing range, you know, going through is good. If I have fruit, it goes up, you know, so... Just people learn from these continuous glucose monitors. I'll take now, my jacket off and maybe I can grab a. Did you? Uh, did you yeah, eat? Like did this. you uh, eat your way into that condition from the eight thousand cal? I mean, someone who's eating eight thousand calories a day. I know you're burning it off running a two twenty four marathon, uh, but you're talking about a massive load of carbohydrates for a person in a hundred and fifty pound body or whatever your skinny runner frame is. Is that a contributing factor to that condition? Yeah, it's hard to know. So when people don't make enough insulin, some of it's autoimmune, meaning the body has this uh, attack, it's autoimmune. But most cases in adults who get this is called idiopathic, meaning we don't know. I mean, I guess you could theorize like, you know, the human organism's not designed to eat the runner Mm -hmm. diet since age 13. So maybe I did just, you know, 
tax my pancreas too much from the diet that it just mm. said uncle you know i, I can't make anymore I, I, it, viral insults which are transient you know so when you look at people who develop these conditions sometimes they're antibody positive you know they have an autoantibody um, but the majority of the adult cases who have who aren't making insulin uh, in sufficient amounts it's they don't know right and and you just kind of hope that it was a static situation where you still make a little bit because you you don't need that much. Like if you eat low carb, you know, you, you could make just a little bit and stay good. Uh, conventional wisdom would be, well, gosh, you're going to have to go on insulin. But that's only if I ate a standard American diet, I'd be on insulin, but I don't. So I can keep things, you know, in a safe range just by and it's joy. Right. So the foods I eat are I look forward to you know, my next meal, because it's going to be a ribeye or a piece of fish or a big omelet with fresh stuff in it. I mean, that's that's joyful food, you know, stuff that you'd have in your cookbooks, you know. Now, you're still putting in a lot of energy expenditure with your running. And so how does that sync up with your, you know, significant restriction of carbohydrates? Are you uniquely qualified to try this? Would you recommend it to another runner or is there a place for strategic inclusion of carbs based on one's individual particulars but especially one's energy expenditure and especially your age i mean you're pushing your body at, at a level that's you know unlikely for for many people in their 50s yeah it's a great question i think that last part is individual you know so i mean you wrote about improbable endurance you know that metabolic flexibility and fat adaptation so through years of low carb diet I can oxidize fat at 90% of my VO2 max in, a, in an exercise lab, you know, so be running at, you know, close to six minute pace, <laughs> burning fat. And that's a good place to be, but that's a long-term adaptation. Most people flip that switch at, you know, 40 to 50% of their VO2 max. They flip over to carb oxidation. That's walking to get the mail, man. Yeah. And they burn, they shift yeah. the carbs. So that's a process. And that's just, a choice, you know, that's a good place to be. I mean, you can burn glucose or you can burn fat, you know, so for endurance uh, training and endurance racing, burning fat's a good place to be. Now, if you don't have any problem medically with producing insulin or insulin resistance, you know, someone like Zach Bitter, you listen to him. So he's a massive fat burner, but on race day or some of his harder training runs where he's kind of burning matches a little bit, you know, sure, he's going to start trickling in a little more glucose. But, you know, the big tank is still, it's like an electric battery and you got a little gas engine, right? So the electric battery is the predominant, that's fat burning. And you got a little gas tank, you know, so the gas tank, you know, you light up when you're just like you're in a Prius or something, you're driving up the hill, right? The gas kicks on and then you're in cruise mode. So yeah, if you're racing, you got to have a little of that gas mode or else you're going to get dropped right? toward the France, You know, Chris Froome, you know, became tour champion. He went to a low carb diet. So he's like the best fat oh. burner out there, but sure enough, you know, on those big mountain stages, you know, he's trickling in carbs, you know, so he's basically riding the electric battery until they hit the base of Lap d'Huez and then boom, you know, he's got a lot of glycogen still left in the tank. So work on that. I think every, it's, it's a human trait. A healthy human can use fat for fuel. I mean, I think that's probably a safe thing to say. You know, when we're sleeping, when we're walking, when we're running, that's just in our DNA. Sure, use glucose when you need it. That's fight or flight. But the majority of the day, we should be able to access fat for fuel. People who are becoming obese, high insulin state, 
diabetics injecting insulin, these are type twos, not type one diabetics, they've basically fat trapped. They can't access that fat tank. So they have to burn carbs. So they're set up that way. So you get the insulin levels down, slow down, right? Like you say, slow the F down, mm -hmm. right? Breathe through your nose, use your diaphragm, conversational pace, teach yourself to burn fat. It's like the mafetone pace, right? Your mafetone, you know, what pace are you running while you're burning fat, right? It's 15 minutes a mile, then it's 12 minutes a mile. Now it's 10 minutes a mile. You're getting fitter. You know, Mark Allen used that approach. You know, <laughs> Going to, uh, I believe it was uh, five minutes and 18 seconds per mile crazy. for five miles burning fat. I mean, yes. yeah, it's phenomenal where you can, how you can progress. And then you pretty much have the best of both worlds competitive advantage because like you mentioned with Chris Froome, I didn't realize he was a low carbohydrate eater. That's really interesting. He's a, he's a, yeah, he dropped a stone or a couple. Yeah. I mean, he, right. he leaned out. Yeah. Um, and you can see kind of like if you're someone who is a fat burner. So if you look, this is these are my trends. Mark's showing his uh, glucose monitor, which is with a very stable uh, arc. In other words, no blood sugar spikes, just everything right there in the, uh, you know, the 70 to 90 range. Um, Other than the, the morning day. run. The morning run, it goes up to 120, 130. Right. Desirably so. so. Yeah. Good because you're a healthy body. Brad makes glucose. So I can go out for a run. If I did like high intensity, occasionally it'll shoot up to like 180 range because your body's gluconeogenesis. So your body's making energy. So that's kind of that nice, healthy rise. You go for a run, you make energy, you feel good, you come home and, and you're good. So, so like that's a good, most people that can't burn fat when they exercise, their sugar goes down. We don't want that, right? We want right, they're, sugar. They're burning through their, the, burning. the minimal amount of blood glucose in the bloodstream. Yeah, and they, they can't crash. use the fat. So then they bonk. Yeah. But if yeah. you can make the energy, you can go all freaking day, right? Other than like your foot hurts or something. Yeah. You know, you're going to be fine. You're only limited by, you know, what your muscle capacity is. You're not limited by your fuel source. And your brain, that central governor yeah, doesn't feel like governor. going 100 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's wild stuff, Mark. I'm, I'm so glad to connect with you. I know we, um, we could probably talk about a bunch of other things, but maybe, uh, before we go, I want to get a little plug for the, the barefoot and the minimalist shoe lifestyle and talk about how you've transitioned. I'm sure you started out as a, as a regular, uh, runner with the, the, the giant waffle sole as seen on the cover of Jim Fix's <laughs> book. And now in recent years, you're a huge advocate. And I think, have you even run like uh, some long distances barefoot, if I recall? Yeah, I've run half marathons barefoot. I've run <laughs> ultras and sandals. Um, I ran the Boston Marathon a couple of times in five fingers. And, and then oh one time those Karachi sandals. And um, I love them. But um, yeah, I, I squeezed my feet into track spikes for years and ended up with that uh, hallux valgus deformity. And what that is, is, is your foot looks like a shoe for those listening right you're you're, you're like a pointy toe shoe your big toe is smashed in is a bunion type of thing mm. um, but that comes from the footwear so had some surgery done in the year 2000 for that you know cleaned up some bone there they straightened the toe out a little bit and I, I realized just like nutrition I realized that no one had ever taught me anything about like the foot or running injury so I kind of dug into the dark space on uh footwear and and the foot and, uh, you know, this was before Born to Run came out, McDougall's book, and before Lieberman's paper. So I started to 
I had a shoe sponsorship with with Brooks at the time, and they saw I was into this stuff, and they were sending me some hacked off running shoes. They had a guy there, and one of their designers was like from the old school, and he knew that like the way the toe box was and flat shoes like was biomechanically. You know, the engineers are the smart people in the room, not the marketers. You know, so no offense, no offense, no offense to the marketers, but I mean, from the scientific, it's it's the it's the nerds' world world. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like, this works, right? And uh, yeah, and then everything exploded, you know, when Chris McDougal wrote his book and Dan Lieberman's papers, you know, the science started to come out. And uh, we opened up a shoe store here, Brad, about 12 years ago, promoting natural footwear. Not everyone needs to be minimal, but wide toe box, light, no heel elevation, teach them how to strengthen their feet. It's kind of like the food movement, like eat real food, you know, put your feet in real shoes, you know, something that complements normal anatomy and retrain the foot so if you have a foot injury don't just brace it you know Mm -hmm. let's try to you know what other extremity in our body if it were hurt will we just brace it for the rest of our lives (laughs) Uh, well our eyes we put glasses on instead of work those muscles i had jake steiner on my podcast talking about how you can you know correct myopia with just more more physical exercise Mm -hmm. for the eyes and challenge so uh, we have the feet and the eyes that we we disgrace with uh, you know, the, the, the cast of the, the cushiony shoe. Yeah. Yeah. The mil- there's a whole subculture in the military about eye training because they have to pass their eye test. Oh, wow. Like you could probably find them on the interweb. Just say you're a 20 year old kid and you want to get into flight school, right? You got to be able to see like Chuck Yeager. What if you can't like, oh, and you know, every minute of your life to that point in time has been like, you want to be Chuck Yeager, uh, the greatest West Virginian, by the way, Chuck just passed oh, away. Another plug first for West man. Virginia. Wow. Yeah, big plug. Um, first man to break the sound barrier. But yeah, there's some things you can do, you know, to, to train that focus in the lens and the muscles of the lens. So with the feet, we're talking about uh, trying to spend more time, especially around the house and safe environment. Yeah, and with that with that barefoot yeah. coming back barefoot into the picture right now, right? Standing oh here. my gosh! In the hospital setting, they let this guy I'm walk the, around I'm barefoot. Office, but, uh, here's my shoe. You know, like this is my hospital shoe. It's black. So he's but, showing a shoe, people, that he can make and I can, can roll ball up in water into the size a ball. Of a lacrosse ball. The most minimal lack of support. Oh, walk around shoe, wonderful. Smaller than a coffee cup. You know, when you roll. <laughs> Can yeah, you put your everything. shoe into a ball? That's the that's the test if you're a real minimal guy. But your feet feel great at the end of the day when you are using them. You know, they, that's how keeps them springy. You know, yeah, that's amazing. Um, when when you get accustomed, and we want to talk about that gradual and, and gentle integration. But once you get accustomed to it, the most comfortable shoe imaginable is is the minimal one. And it's just because that's that's how the foot's designed to stand and support your body weight. And you get that sensory feedback from the ground. You know, we could we could do a, a mm. show on this topic, you know, grounding, earthing some of the I mean, there's legit, I mean, it's it's not like weird science. It's most mm. of it's just common sense, you know, evolutionary biology and medical anthropology. You know, this is just the way it is, you know. Right. Yeah. Re re uh find it again if you've lost it, right? uh-huh yeah it's yeah. nothing nothing new it's only a couple million years old that we can yes, like eating, function uh, barefoot eating animal products right like we somehow survived as a species yeah 
searching for these foods. <laughs> and All right. Well, ancestral living, doing his, doing right. his yeah, thing my out there. Is Two Rivers Treads, and we're on online. Oh. You could call us. We'll walk. We do Zoom fittings. You'll get to speak to a small town human in a small independent store locally owned by me you know there aren't many running shoe stores like that now they're all like big corporate mm, shows, right. right yeah called two rivers treads.com two rivers treads.com and located in the great state of west virginia which west is often virginia. ranked somewhere around 50 on a lot of those lifestyle categories <laughs> yes. obesity index 49 so or 50 right on for the right the the cutting edge shoe store can can top out any of those fancy states that are ranked higher so uh, let's go visit that website. Mark, thanks so much for the great oh, work you're you, doing Brad. in the hospital Enjoy. setting. We didn't even get to some of those hot topics like how you got the sugar out of the cafeteria, but you're you're doing great work and we'll definitely get you on for a whole nother list of topics. So thank you very much. Thanks cool. for listening. Take care everybody. of your cardiac health. That's what yeah, that's right. message of the day. Preserve that cardiac health and go go get those two tests. I like that. I'm yes. excited. I'm going to go get a score myself. Yeah, let me know. Yeah, if you need an order, I could probably even send something across state lines just to go get you one. Dr. Mark Kukazella, everybody. Da, 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 da. Hey, folks, how about a non-drinker telling you what kind of alcohol you should drink? That's right. It's pseudo-sommelier Brad Kearns here to recommend dry farm wines. Why? Because if you choose to drink, I want you to be healthy and make a superior choice to the mainstream commercial wines. Listen to my podcast with Dry Farm Wines founder Todd White. The insights were astonishing, especially that most all commercial wines are loaded with dozens of chemicals that the FDA allows in your wine, but don't have to be listed on the label. And the sugar, oh my goodness, the sugar levels can be as much or more per liter than Coca-Cola, but difficult to taste due to the acidity in the wine. Dry Farm Wines is a membership club where you're shipped hand-picked wines from old-world family-run vineyards in France, Italy, Greece, and Sicily. These wines come from non-irrigated vineyards hundreds of years old that deliver a tastier, higher antioxidant grape, and they're independent lab certified to be completely free from chemical additives and naturally 100% sugar-free. That's right. The sugar was allowed to ferment out instead of be arrested by chemical intervention in the name of pleasing the average consumer palate that has a sweet tooth. The Dry Farm Wines Club has taken off like crazy because ancestral and keto enthusiasts, people who care about their health, appreciate a sugar-free wine. You'll enjoy the variety, the taste, and the pleasant sensation in the aftermath of burning through the alcohol buzz and going on with your life without a hangover. So if you care about your carb intake and your overall health, Dry Farm Wines has a special promotion for podcast listeners. Get your first bottle for a penny when you enroll at dryfarmwines.com slash Brad or click on the Dry Farm Wines at the bradkerns.com shopping page. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows.
Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five-star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.